For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, But You Shall Be My Witnesses. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on this beautiful Sabbath day. And I would like to just echo what was already said several times uh, to all the mothers, just to say Happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, it's a well-deserved day. Mothers are so important in our life. And if you're anything like my mother, you know the Bible tells us, and we know from nature that... Uh, Mothers are the ones that are chosen to bear children, right? But if you're like my mom, it doesn't stop with birth or even the age of 18 or even the age of 38, but it's a lifelong endeavor as she's still bearing with me. And so just like to say Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Uh, you guys all mean so much to all of us. and Your role in our lives are so important. And so I know it's already been asked, but... Does anybody know what day it is in the count? 21, that's right, day 21. So we're here today on this 21st day of this intercession period, right? This path toward Pentecost that started really three weeks ago tomorrow because it started within the days of unleavened bread, that first Sabbath after uh, the first day of unleavened bread, or the, the, the Sabbath well, this year it was a little different because the Sabbath was on the same day as the first day of unleavened bread. But it started that Sunday after that first day of unleavened bread, which also happened to be a Sabbath. And so we're in this intercession period. And when we go to the book of Acts, which we will in a few weeks, definitely, of course, as this day of Pentecost approaches, uh, but we are given just a small little snippet of what was going on after Jesus rose from the dead and, you know, the days of unleavened bread had came about until he ascended to heaven. And it, the title of my message today is, But You Shall Be My Witnesses. And we're going to start off today. I'd like to read verses 1 through 8 in Acts, the first chapter. And we hear Luke, who's the author of this uh, book that we have, all about the very beginning of the church and the different journeys of Paul and everything that's happened. But he starts his book off by saying, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. Verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus gives this commission, and we see that he gives the disciples there these instructions to not depart 
for, from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father. And of course, that promise is going to be fulfilled on that day of Pentecost, and it's the Holy Spirit. But in the process of giving these instructions, there's this question that's asked by them in verse 6. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? Are you going to do that now? I, I can imagine that these disciples of Jesus are thinking, okay, you know, you, may, you scared us a little bit, you died, we thought everything was over, then you rose from the dead and the light bulbs went off in our minds. So now it's time to do what you keep talking about. All throughout your, your, your wanderings and your preaching, you're talking about this kingdom. You see, as Jews, these disciples grew up in a time period where they had the typical anticipation that most Jews did when it came to the Messiah. Most of them anticipated a military or a battle Messiah that would come down and put the Roman rule of Palestine away, free Israel, and restore a united kingdom of Israel. And this is something that is true. It's going to happen. It's something that the prophets foretold. Jesus' response was in two parts. First, he says that it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that's in the Father's authority. Secondly, he commissioned them, but you will be my witnesses. My witnesses. You see, Jesus didn't say, well, okay, now you know the truth. I've called you out. I've chosen you. Now, just believe these things. No, he has a job for them. They are to go out and witness what Jesus had done what Jesus has done for them and what Jesus has done for the world and what God is doing through Jesus. So we have to ask this question, just simple. What is a witness? The Greek word that's used here in Acts is the word actually martus, which it can mean a witness in a literal sense. Maybe we've used that in our own language today. We know what a witness is in a court of law, for example, judiciously. They will call witnesses. Someone who might have had an eyewitness, uh, uh, that might have been an eyewitness to an event or something happening. But it also can mean, and I apologize if this keeps. Might just do a little low. Can you still hear me well? I'm pretty loud, so I think it works. Uh, but it can also mean a martyr. That's where we get the word martyr from, martus. And we know what a martyr is. It's someone who dies for their faith. And so in this sense, the witness, their beliefs, their actions, their story, their life, is a testimony to the faith in which they proclaim. Now, I think that both of them work. We, you know, we're to be witnesses for Christ. I think that most of us probably believe that we're not going to be, most likely, maybe, I, I don't want to be wrong, but most of us, growing up in this country, we're probably not going to be martyrs. That could change. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm just saying the culture that we live in, to, to the most, to, to a degree, at least till today, is something that we're not going to get in trouble for, and our life is not going to be taken. Now, of course, I'm not taking that for granted whatsoever. Any of us, we're supposed to be ready. But it's also true that it's difficult to say that we're a witness to something that we did not actually witness ourselves. 
It's true that we didn't witness Jesus walking this earth. We didn't see him preaching. We didn't see the miracles. We didn't see him feed 5,000 people. We didn't see him uh, change water into wine. And of course, we did not see him die and then raise from the dead. And so some may argue that Jesus, he's not saying that all of us are to be witness for him, but only those he was talking to right there and then, they're in Jerusalem because they were the ones who witnessed this. I think that the fact that Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, I think it's more likely, and especially when we hear the letters of Paul and we, the other letters in the New Testament, the indication, of course, is that Jesus wasn't limiting this extension of his followers being witnesses for him. But he meant for all those who are going to be new creatures in Christ to be witnesses. Now, even though we haven't... Is this still shaking around? Maybe that's better. Okay, sorry, my apologies, okay? Even though we haven't witnessed these things, these are historical events that happened, we have eyewitness testimony testifying to this. Paul is very, not Paul, excuse me, Luke is very specific to talk about whenever he was investigating these things, that he was using everything available to him, including eyewitness accounts and infallible proofs. That's what he mentions. People who actually saw these events. We didn't see those events. But I think that all of us would agree that we are commissioned. We're included in this commission to be witnesses for Christ. And there's three ways that I think from the scriptures that I just wrote down that I think that we can be witnesses for Jesus on this earth. There could be more than just these three, but I just limited to these three. Number one, the transformation that has taken place in us. All of us have a story. Every single one of us has a history of what our life was like before we followed Christ. I like this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul says, But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, is something we could spend weeks on. The context of this that Paul's talking from, he's actually talking about the story of Moses, where Moses interacts with God face to face and comes down off the mountain. And all the Israelites, because he glued, he was, he was glowing, they didn't want to look at him. They had to put a veil on. They were scared. Because he was reflecting, because he was being in the presence of God, he was reflecting that glory of God and in the same manner Paul is getting to this idea of us like a mirror reflecting that glory that's in Christ secondly God's light shining through us God's light shining through us the famous sermon on the mount in Matthew the fifth chapter verse 16 Jesus says let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father and heaven. And I've spoken on this before, and all of these things that Jesus says. And I remember many years ago, I read a book on the Sermon on the Mount, an individual by the name of Daniel Doriano. 
And he wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and he was talking about this passage, and he gave this analogy, this metaphor, when we think about the sun and the moon, and we know that the moon doesn't have any light in and of itself, right? But when we see the moon in the sky, we know it's a reflection from the greater light, the sun. And so in the same way, we as Christians, as we witness, we have the opportunity and we are supposed to be witnessing the light of God. That light that's shining through us, we are reflecting, of course, the, the, the true light, which is the light that comes from God. Thirdly, the fruits that we bear. The fruits that we bear. Both of these, of course, are going to result in transformation, letting our shot light shine before men is going to result in us bearing fruits. We all know the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 22 and 23. We read, but the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And we've heard this passage many, many times. It's on, you know, it's used sometimes in Christian songs for kids and things like that. If you're like me, you hadn't even came close to mastering these fruits of the Spirit yet. This is a lifelong endeavor. We demonstrate these fruits through our lives, by our words, our actions, the way that we interact with other people. We've been commissioned to be witnesses. Witnesses for Christ. And so here we are in this intercession period. And many of you will remember this. A few years ago, uh, we took the opportunity, the Days of Unleavened Bread and to, to Pentecost, of course, you have about six to seven weeks. Because, of course, sometimes it's the Days of Unleavened Bread in that first week when you have a year like this. So we did a six-week Bible study, a six-part Bible study that we entitled The Count to Pentecost. And uh, we wrote these ourselves, and uh, we presented six different important characteristics that Christians need to have just in their walk and their faith and their Christian witness. And I just want to focus on two of those today. I'm borrowing a little bit from that Bible study because I think it's important. I have to agree with Reggie. We can't forget this season of the year, this intercession period we have between the Days of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost. And so as I was thinking about this, the first two topics were faith and hope. And that's what I'm going to focus on today because I think that both of those, and everyone in here would agree, that faith and hope, they have a lot of similarities to them. There's some differences, and we're going to quickly talk about that, but they are fundamental characteristics to both our Christian walk and, of course, to our witness to the world. So let's go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, to start off this first topic that we're going to quickly talk about, the topic of faith. Raise your hand if you would like to have more faith. And, and we know, we read from the scriptures, faith is not an option. It's, it's pretty, pretty much a requirement to the Christian the Christian walk. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, many people call this the faith chapter. We read, the author start out by saying, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. 
Verse 3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And so we see that if we start reading the entirety of this chapter, we're going to see the author of Hebrews go through many of the different examples of people of faith who demonstrated a steadfast belief that God was faithful, that whatever he said, he was going to do. And it resulted in them having faith. But what makes all of this, in my opinion, be logically true and consistent is the very end of the chapter, verse 39 and 40, where the author concludes this chapter. And all of these, all of those individuals of faith, from Enoch to Noah to Abraham, all of these individuals, all of these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Which is true. We have faith in something that we've only been able to taste a little bit. The kingdom of God is not here. Many of those promises that God has given to us through both the New Testament and the Old Testament have not come to pass yet. But we have to have faith just like these individuals of history who had faith despite not receiving what was given to them, what was promised to them. Let's skip down to Hebrews, the third chapter, verse 1 through 6. I want to read a lot out of Hebrews today. Hebrews, the third chapter, and there's a lot of comparison in Hebrews to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, or to Moses and Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 3, we read, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. And Christ, of course, was faithful to God the Father who appointed him. As Moses was also, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And so we see Moses as being compared to Jesus, not as a way of competition, of course. We know that you know, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd and is greater than all, as the scripture reads in verse 3, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. But what we can learn from this is that if God was faithful to the children of Israel, which we know he was, and the house that he built through Moses, so much more will he be faithful in the ultimate house that he's building through the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Reading on, we are given a warning about not having faith because we know, as I just mentioned, it's not just something that we're suggested to have, but it's a requirement. Verse 7 we read, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And the day of trial in the wilderness, and of course he's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said they are always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you of an lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who have, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom he, was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that we, so we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. And we talked a lot about this during the days of unleavened bread. The dangers of unbelief and what it resulted in. It resulted in rebellion ultimately, of course, with the children of Israel. And so, also included in this idea of faith is it's not something that's just a dormant feeling inside of us. Faith is an active characteristic. It's not passive. It's not just, well, I believe this, but it really doesn't change anything. True and authentic faith is going to drive us to action. It's going to change our behavior. And that is what the transformation is all about. Let's go to James, the second chapter. I know I'm reading a lot of scriptures today. and Something I'm not as characteristically to do when I speak. But I just there are so many passages that I felt like were important when it comes to this topic of faith and hope. James the second chapter and we just went through a Bible study on the book of James but verse 18 of chapter 2 but someone will say you have faith and I have works show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God you do well even the demons believe and tremble even the demons believe and tremble and so often we see unfortunately some versions of Christianity tend to teach a version of Christianity where it's just all about intellectual belief, right? You just say you believe in something, and that's all that matters. There's not really much emphasis on a change of heart, on a change of behavior. But every single individual that we read in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, all of those examples of faith, when you read that passage, when you read those cha that, that chapter there in Hebrews, it's not focused on their intellectual belief or their intellectual faith. It's focused on their faith by means of what they did, their action. Picking it up in verse 20 of James, the second chapter. Be, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? you see that faith was working together with his works. And by works, faith was made perfect. 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that man, you see that, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. We know that we are saved through grace. We are saved, and there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. But that saving grace is going to result in work. It's going to result in a changed behavior. And that's what James is getting at. And many people have made lots of qualms between what Paul says about faith and works and what James says. But nothing, in my opinion, is in contradiction at all. Verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And this is something that I think just naturally nature shows. We can think of all the things in life when we do things, typically we're either forced to do them or we're prompted from an internal drive to do them. It's not natural to do things just to do them. Sometimes we have to. Maybe not all of us want to have to go to work every day. But it's, of course, a necessary thing. As we live on this earth, we've got to make a living. But to truly, genuinely do things on a consistent basis, year in, year out, and grow as the scriptures tells us that we are to grow as a living, you know, individual that's alive in Christ, takes a genuine change, genuine faith. The second characteristic that we mentioned is hope. And it's the companion of faith. And, you know, you have to have faith, of course, to have hope. It's what drives the hope. And it's sometimes difficult to differentiate between these two concepts because they are very related. And sometimes in the Bible, these terms are used in basically interchangeable ways. But there are some subtle differences. If you were to go to a dictionary and just read what you know, a typical English dictionary says about hope, you would see something like a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. So it's something that we wish for. It's something that we desire. And we use this word hope all the time in our common language. You know, we say things like, I, I hope that, you know, I might make it to work on time. You know, if you're like me, you have to drive on 169 to get to work and constantly has construction going on. And it's also like a, a race every single day to get to work. And half the time, no matter how early I, I leave, there's always something that happens. Even the smallest little fender bender can back up that highway for miles. And so in my head, oftentimes I'm like, man, I hope I make it to work on time. I hope there's not, you know, something that's, catching me up this morning. I hope I pass my test. I hope I get a promotion at work. This week, many of us were probably thinking, man, I really hope, I pray that those storms pass us, right? Because there's so many storms and so much rain going on this week. But what is common in all of these examples is that there is no guarantee that they're going to happen. When we think of these things, and we think of these, we use this word hope, and we, you know, uh, you know maybe the, the idea of hoping for something like this to come to pass, you know in the back of your mind there's no guarantee. It's just a desire. It's a wish. And you might pray about it and hope that God answers your prayer on it. But hope from a biblical perspective is very different. 
It's not wishful thinking. It's not anything like that, but it's a surety. The term hope that is used both in verb and noun form in the New Testament, and it's the Greek word in noun form, elpis, and it is used with the knots of confident expectation or solid assurance. You see, from a biblical standpoint, hope isn't wishful, it's certainty. You know what's going to happen. You know what's going to take place. Romans, the fifth chapter, verses 1 and 2, we see Paul write, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And here Paul uses this word hope and uses this word rejoice together. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. He's not using this word, well, you know, with an uncertainty. He's using this word for us to have hope, which in his mind is a sure confidence. It's something that you know is going to happen. And a little few verses down in verse 5, we see Paul say, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, this hope is futuristic. It's a futuristic expectation that's rooted in God's own faithfulness. You see, we have this hope, which is something we're longing for. It's in the future, and we know it's going to happen because the anchor of this hope is none other but the very Word of God. And we know that He's faithful. But to have hope, we have to have that first ingredient, faith. Without faith, there is no hope. And you can put it another way, our hope, our expectation in that future reality is only as strong or as firm as our faith. And we know that we as we just got done celebrating these days of unleavened bread that we had, that you know we, we, we talked about putting off that old man and taking in the unleavened bread of Jesus Christ and throwing out the old leaven. And we've rededicated ourselves as we do every year. And one of the messages I gave on that day, I talked about how forgetful we are as human beings and how we need these reminders. And we have a great hope in Christ. And in a lot of ways, what's interesting is, is that you can actually think a lot of different ways about our life and as our Christian walk, but there in the New Testament, there in Acts, you have this intermediate period. Those disciples, they're told to wait there, wait for the promise of the Father. And it's so many days until that promise came. And in some ways, that's what we're doing. We're waiting on that promise. But instead, we're not being passive. We're not commissioned just to sit around and wait around, but we're commissioned to work, to go out and to do the work that God has commissioned us to do, to be witnesses. And every single one of us has a gift that's been given to us because we have God's Spirit. And that gift needs to be used. So going back to this idea of being witnesses, you know, it's obviously after Pentecost, and we know what happens uh, in Acts, the fourth chapter. But what's interesting is, is that we see that this faith and this, this hope demonstrated in boldness by the disciples. Now, they're the apostles. Acts, the fourth chapter, we see 
Peter and John, they go into the temple and they heal a lame man and they start preaching Jesus and they, they get arrested. They get arrested, they get detained and they knew that this would probably cause a stir. They weren't oblivious to it. These same individuals that, you know, took Jesus in and ended up crucifying him, they knew they would probably run into these, these people. But because of that Holy Spirit that they were given, this is after Pentecost, that firm faith and, and hope was demonstrated. I want to just read after they were caught. After they were caught, caught in verse 13 of Acts, uh, Acts 4, we read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, I don't know if this is true. You can only, you know, think about it in your mind. But I wonder if some of these same people are like, aren't you guys the ones that just ran off from Jesus scared just like, you know, a few months ago whenever we arrested Jesus? Because they were, right? We see exactly what happens when Jesus was arrested. They were out of there. And not only were they out of there, they were told beforehand that this would happen, and they all said, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. Jesus will follow you anywhere. We'll follow you anywhere. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could not say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. From now on, they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them to not speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and we have heard. Which is an amazing demonstration of both faith and an outpouring of the hope that they had in their hearts. Skipping down to verse 29. They were eventually, of course, let go. And they left and prayed. And one of the things they said was this in verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. With boldness. I think all of us, you know, looking at this, would love to have that boldness. And we have that same spirit to speak with boldness when it comes to the things of God. So, a couple points of reflection that I'd like to conclude this message with. Number one, we are working towards something even if it is not realized in this life. We have a great hope. When we look over the stories of the Bible, almost never, of course, we know this, does God give a promise and immediately fulfill it. But we are to have a faith that gives us a surety of hope, a sure expectation that God is faithful. 
As someone who's in education, and I've mentioned this before in the past, I'm sure, it's May now, uh, and, you know, there's a host of graduation ceremonies going on, both college and high school, and if you're on social media, you probably have someone that has a friend or has a, a daughter or son or a grandchild that's maybe graduating high school or college. And so as someone that's been in K-12 education for 10 years, I've always enjoyed graduation. You know, some of these students I get to know, uh, and I don't know them, you know, from when they're young on, but maybe just for a few years as they're in high school. But, you know, one of the things that is exciting to be able to see these kids, these individuals, uh, maybe you can think about this with your own kids, walk across the stage and be, you know, the culmination of the last, you know, 10 to 12 years of their educational career, the years that they put in to be able to, to get an education. And, and so it's interesting that, you know, when you think about it, and, and, and high school kids as well as college, they take typically for all the courses that they have, they have something called a final examination, right? It's supposed to be, a, you know, a comprehensive exam of everything that they've been taught in that semester. They're supposed to be able to recall all of those things. Now, of course, the preparation for that exam, in theory, is supposed to be in the, you know, progression of that course. There are kids that like to, and Reggie can probably, you know, attest to this as well as Barnabas and uh, Carolyn, that you guys have been teachers. Uh, you know that they do some of that, you know, I guess you would say the emergency 24 hours before, and they just try to cram. But in theory, they're supposed to, from the very beginning, accumulate this knowledge, be continually preparing as they go out the course of this subject area that they're in and take this final exam. In other words, the preparation doesn't just start right before the test, right before the test. But that's the same that goes with our walk with God, right? It's not a perfect analogy. But in theory, that's what we see in the Bible, many different examples of men and women of faith. They didn't just overnight get faith, but it was a lifestyle of faith. It was a journey of faith. We must prepare for the test that we will go through before the tests come upon us. Think about the example of Noah and the flood. We know that Noah, he was told to build an ark. And this ark was going to take a little while to build. And people laughed at him and thought, man, you're crazy, Noah. What are you doing? You think that there's going to be this flood? And so he had to endure many different years of people ridiculing him, work, preparation, until finally one day the, the God of faithfulness sent the rain. And God's words were realized. And Noah's preparation that was driven by his faith and his hope and the God that he served, it didn't just begin when the rain came. Same thing for Abraham. We go to Hebrews the 11th chapter, which we've talked so much about today. Verse 8 and 10 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. God didn't front him the inheritance and says, Here, I'm going to give you this. Come on with me. Come to this land that you don't have anything or any knowledge about. He called Abram at the time he was Abram, out of this land, and Abraham followed. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we can say the same thing for the New Testament apostles. None of them received, of course, the kingdom of God. None of them. But they all lived as witnesses to Jesus Christ. And many today, of course, as well. So many that we have known and others throughout the world and throughout history who have loved God, of course, had faith and hope in God that the certain expectation, even in the midst of diseases, cancer, tragedies, all types of hardships, died. And they died just like those examples. They died in faith. Those examples that we read in Hebrews 11. Never receiving what they were working towards yet. In all of these examples, there was a preparation period. This is our preparation period right now. The only difference is the analogy of the graduation and high school kids and taking courses is that we don't know when our final is. But we're to be prepared regardless. My second reflection, the Holy Spirit, that is God leading us, enables us for this journey. When we look at the examples of the apostles, which we kind of just did, we see such a great turn of events with the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, which we will, of course, talk more about later as we get closer to that day of Pentecost. We see, and as I've already touched upon this, this group of men who out of fear and trembling, when they watched and witnessed their you know, leader, their rabbi, Jesus Christ, be arrested, absolutely abandoned him. And they turned in, of course, to individuals that in the face of death, in the face of the shackles that might maybe come upon them. And it wasn't just death. We read all throughout Paul's letters and even uh, the later part of the book of Acts and even here in the first few chapters of Acts, we see that they weren't killed. Many times they were just beaten. They were put through things that made them suffer. And in the face of that, in the face of that, they were able to endure and be faithful witnesses because of the faith and hope that was in them. You could not fabricate that. It was genuinely something that transformed them from the inside out, that resulted in them reflecting the light of Christ and reflecting the image and glory of God. And of course, resulted in them bearing fruit. And that fruit being all of those fruits, but the fruit of love for Christ and love for fellow man to be able to bring the gospel message to people who desperately needed to hear it. And so as we conclude this message today, I would like to encourage all of us as we reflect on this intercession period that we're in, this day 21. Next week we'll be on day 28 when we come here. Reflect on that commission that Jesus has given us to be witnesses for Him. To ask ourselves, is the faith and hope in our lives, you know, truly and authentically allowing us to be the, the witnesses that we can be for Christ? Is the faith and hope in us continually transforming us? So as we go throughout this week and we come back to another week, let us just ponder these things and many other things as we're in this intercession period, this journey from the days of unleavened bread to Pentecost, which is a demonstration this entire time of God's faithfulness because we see him through 
Jesus' ministry through that first part of Acts, the first chapter, until the day of Pentecost, that God says something and he completes what he says. So let us think on these.